Well, in our face-to-face encounters with Jesus, things have been building. Jesus, um, in our last couple of weeks, he was teaching on uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, on the end of the age, and on his return. And then what we're going to look at today is the celebration of Passover. We're celebrating Lord's Supper and understand that Passover and Lord's Supper are intricately linked. They are very much connected. And so what I'm going to do, we're going to play um, a portion of Scripture out of Luke, uh, chapter 22. And what I want to encourage you to do is to to watch very carefully what happens uh, as well as listening to the Scripture that are there. Pay attention to, to see that there's more than one cup. Pay attention to see what Jesus does with the bread. And, and I think that as you see it portrayed, because they've done a really, really good job of giving us a look at what the Passover would have been like in that first century in Jesus' day. So let's play the clip here, and then we'll um, go into our time of teaching. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. 
Okay, let me point out just a couple of things before we really dive into the Passover that may seem a little strange as you read through it. You saw in the beginning that Jesus has um, his instructions for Peter and John is that they are to look for a man carrying a water pot in order to know where to prepare the Passover. Now, that seems strange because you would think, well, can you just say we're going to Jacob's house or something like that, you know, that there was a specific place. Well, first of all, a man carrying a water pot in that day was very unusual because usually it was the women that would transport the water. Not very um, egalitarian in the way that they approached that, but that's the way it was in that day. The reason why there's this secrecy about where the Passover would be is if you look in the verses that precede this in Luke chapter 22, you'll discover that Judas has already went and met with the high priest, and he has already been paid to betray Jesus. And so Jesus secretly sends Peter and John to make the preparations for the Passover. Passover takes a great deal of time to prepare. Uh, the lamb had to be roasted, you had to uh, prepare the matzah, you had to prepare the bitter herbs, or all kinds of elements for it. And so it would have been the perfect opportunity when the disciples were gathered by themselves in a, in a private room for Jesus to be betrayed. But Jesus very much, in fact, he says, listen to these words again. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The Passover was incredibly important to Jesus because the Passover tells the story of God's plan of redemption from the very beginning all the way through to what Jesus himself would do and towards the end at his return at what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. What we celebrate as communion or Lord's Supper or Eucharist, depending upon your tradition and your background, It is a continuation that has been given into the church of the Jewish Passover. And it will find its fulfillment, just as Jesus said, where he says, For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. It finds its fulfillment at Jesus' return when all believers, those from the Old Testament, those from the church age and the New Testament, all believers gather together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So it's very significant. And so Jesus had this as one of the highest priorities of his week. Knowing that he was going to suffer, he wanted his disciples to see that the very thing they had been celebrating all their lives pointed to him. The Bible tells us that Jesus is God. If Jesus truly is who he says he is, then everything in the Old Testament and in the New Testament should ultimately point to him. And what I hope you discover today as we walk through a little bit, an an overview of the Passover, is I hope you see just how beautifully it points to Yeshua, to Jesus the Messiah. Now, if we were to do um, a, a full Passover, the way it would normally be done is it begins at sunset and it has to last until at least midnight. That's why when you look in the Gospels, you'll see that a great deal of teaching took place during this meal. Um, John chapters 13, 14, and 15 all take place, and 16, all take place during this meal. So there's a lot of time because there's a lot of elements. Now, some of you are nervous now when I just told you that it needs to last at least six hours. I will do my best 
to make my sermon a little bit shorter than that. I'll, I'll try. But I do want to kind of give you just an overview of what it looks like and what it means. And so what we saw in the, in the scripture in Luke chapter 22 is that it begins with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There are multiple feasts that were required for all of God's people, the children of Israel, to participate in. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a feast that lasted for eight days. And in the middle of it, or near the beginning at least, of that feast was also the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a period of time in which everyone in the house could only eat unleavened bread, bread without yeast. And I'll explain that in just, in just a moment, so hopefully it will make sense. But the Passover itself, which was required for the people of Israel to come and to celebrate in Jerusalem whenever they could, if they physically could, could travel there, the original Passover illustrates God's um, deliverance from the bondage of sin. It was a literal act, a literal story, where God sent a deliverer in Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. Approximately 3,300 years ago, or 1,300 years before Jesus, was the original celebration of Passover. And it was a celebration of freedom, because the children of Israel, for 430 years, had been enslaved in Egypt. They were placed under an ever-increasing hardship and punishment. They were in bondage, but God did not abandon them, his chosen people. He renewed his promise that he would redeem them and bring them into the promised land. So first of all, Passover is a celebration of freedom. When you and I participate and we take of the bread and the cup in the Lord's Supper, that is a celebration of freedom as well because we have been set free from the penalty and bondage of sin and have entered into a relationship with God because of Christ Jesus. Well, in the original um, Passover, it was something that God had, had instilled upon his people in order to help them remember. Because you see, for, for the average person, the average follower of God, they didn't have access on a regular basis to God's word. There would be scrolls that would be in the, um, in the synagogue and later on in the temple, but most people didn't have their own copy of, of God's word. And so God established these feasts to be able to tell the story of what he would do for them. And that's what this is all about. It's what God has done for us. And in the Passover, we see a multi-sensory picture of something that is much bigger than just bringing Israel out of physical slavery in Egypt. It is a picture that connects the dots all through the scripture. It connects back to Abraham and his Isaac, or excuse me, his sacrifice of Isaac. Because if you remember that in, in, the, in Genesis, that when Isaac asks his father Abraham, he says, Father, I see the knife, I see the fire, I see the altar. Where is the offering? Where is the sacrifice? And Abraham's answer was the Lord himself will provide the lamb. That was a prophetic statement that not only did Abraham believe that somehow 
if he followed and obeyed God, that God would provide a way to either bring his son back to life or provide a substitute, he also saw that into the future, God himself would be the Passover lamb. He would be the one who would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And so it began all the way back with Abraham and Isaac, and then it, it takes on more depth and more intensity in um, Egypt, where Israel has is, is been enslaved. And so if you remember the story, you can find it in, in the book of Exodus, beginning around chapter, chapter 6. You'll see a lot of the story, and you'll need to read through several chapters, which we will not do this morning. Um, but if you, we were celebrating at Becky and I's house, and you were enjoy, uh, joining us for Passover uh, as a family, because uh, we've celebrated it for many, many years, we would be reading through the whole story because we want to know exactly what it's about. But if you remember, there were nine plagues that were visited upon um, the Egyptians in order to prompt them to let God's people go. And the, the plagues grew in intensity. First of all, God turned the water of the Nile into blood. There was a, a plague that came upon the river. Then God brought a plague of frogs on the land that covered every house, every field, and every room. Then God brought a plague of lice upon all the people. These first three plagues affected everyone, both the the Jews, the Israelis, and the, um, the Egyptians. But then God got more specific because he wanted to show that this really was about convincing Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go. And so the next set of of plagues only um, happened in the areas where the Egyptians themselves lived. God brought swarms of insects to um, plagues on all the Egyptians. Then he brought a disease upon all the cattle that belonged to the Egyptians. Then God rained down boils upon the skins of the people. I mean, it's, it's getting more and more intense. Can you imagine what it would be like to have all these things on top of COVID? Do you think it would begin to get the attention of the people? You know, if you had those kind of things happening, things happening in nature as well as just the struggle that we have with a, with a virus. But Pharaoh did not let the people go. So God rained down hail upon the people and the animals across the land. And then he sent armies of locusts to eat what vegetation the hail did not destroy. So their food stocks, their food stores were being destroyed. And then God sent forth a plague of incredible darkness on the land so that everything was dark. But none of those things were enough to set the people of Israel free. Why? Because God has said in his word, remember this is what happened there in the Passover is a picture of what God required and what God himself would do in order to set all people free from sin. The Bible tells us very clearly that the wages of sin is death. And so the only thing that could pay the price to be able to set people free from sin was death. And specifically, it was the death of the firstborn. It was going to be a a plague that was brought upon the Egyptians and upon anyone who did not, um, who who was not under the blood of a Passover lamb. 
Anyone who wasn't under that, they, their household, they would experience the death of the firstborn in their family and amongst their livestock. You see, that was a picture because God was going to give His firstborn, Jesus Christ, as an offering for us. That's what, we're begin, what we'll begin to see in the Passover. And the Lord Himself would be the one who would carry out the judgment. Because of the hardness of the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not soften, he did not relent, God sent forth the plague over the firstborn, the death of the firstborn. And the Scripture tells us that he himself is the one that went forth and brought judgment upon the people. So what you see here is both God is judge and God is deliverer that are met together in the picture of the Passover. So let me give you a little, uh, a little bit of understanding here because there's a lot of different elements of the Passover. I told you it begins with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In the Scripture, leaven or yeast represents uh, sin. That's why you see in 1 Corinthians that we are to, to remove the old leaven. We're to remove the sin, the things that cause us to stumble in our life. We're to remove it from us so that we can live in a right relationship with God. When you would begin as a, a Jewish family um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you would look for anything in your house that had yeast in it. So every little snack cake that you had, every uh, loaf of bread that you had, anything that had any kind of yeast or leaven in it had to not only be removed, but they would search the corners of, of their home and they would sweep it up and they would take it out and burn it. Now, ironically, what often happens in, in modern day times is what, what they'll do, because we're really good at finding ways around God's rules, and so what often happens in, in homes is they'll just take all their stuff, you know, all their, uh, I don't know, what, does anybody know, how many knows what a Twinkie is? Does anybody know what a Twinkie is? Yeah. They'll take all their Twinkies, all their cupcakes, everything like that, and they'll like take it over to a Gentile neighbor and say, could you keep this for me for eight days, and I'll be back, you know, because, I mean, I don't really want to do without my Twinkies. And, and you come back and get it after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's out of your house, you've met the requirement, you're good to go. That wasn't God's intent. His intent was to remind us that the only way to be right with God is to be sinless. And the yeast represented sin. And so someone who was sinless had to take it away from us, had to pay the price that we deserved. So you would search out the leaven, symbolizing our recognition of our own sin nature, that we are permeated with sin, Galatians says, a little leaven, a little yeast, leavens the whole lump, the whole piece of dough. Once you get a little bit of leaven into, into um, bread dough, it will permeate all of it. The same thing happens with us with sin. So something has to come and totally cleanse us. More accurately, someone has to come and totally cleanse us of sin. So that begins with the searching out of leaven. The second thing that you see is that in the process of a Passover is that it will begin with a washing of your hands. And um, I was afraid I'd spill water, so I have, I, have some, I have some H2O without the H here. 
in, in my basin. But what you would do is you would wash your hands ceremonially, and it would go from person to person, rec- rec- recognizing that all of us need to have clean hands and a clean heart. In essence, it was bringing to life what Psalm 15 and Psalm 21 says, who may ascend to the hill of the, the Lord or who may dwell in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so it was a reminder of, that what they, of what they needed to do. Now, what is interesting is in the, the Last Supper, the Passover that Jesus had with his disciples, is that Jesus goes beyond that. You saw at the end of the clip that there began to be a debate amongst the disciples. After they argued about who it was that was going to betray Jesus, they went totally the opposite extreme and began to argue about who was the greatest. So what does Jesus do? Jesus takes off his robe, and the king of the universe bends down and washes the feet of his disciples. He humbles himself in recognition of the love that he has for them and tenderly washes their feet. It's a beautiful picture, and that's why when Jesus says, he who would be greatest among you, let him be the servant of all, it's exactly what Jesus lived. And so this happened during the time of the Passover, the celebration, when they should have been thinking about having a clean heart. Instead, they're arguing about which one of them has the best reputation. Which one of them is the greatest amongst the disciples? I love the disciples because they're just like us. They do exactly the same things. Well, if you're, when you begin a, a Passover celebration, after you've cleansed your hands and you, and you would light some candles that recognize that um, God is the light of the world, the next thing that you do is that you would take some unleavened bread, and you're going to do a ceremony with it. This that I have here is called a matzatash, um, or a, a unity. And it has in it three pieces of matzah. It is always three pieces. It's never four. It's never two. There are, there are individually envelopes in here in order to separate each piece from another. And what would happen is that the father or whoever was leading the Passover would reach into the, to the unity and he would remove the middle piece of matzah. He would take out that piece of matzah and he would break it and he would take the larger piece and it would be wrapped up in a piece of linen cloth. After it was wrapped up, it would then be hidden. It would be taken by the father, hidden away somewhere, so that um, sometime during the meal, the, the children especially would search out and try to find that piece that had been wrapped in the cloth. That piece is called the afikomen. And afikomen simply means that which comes after. You saw in the video, Jesus, when he took the bread, he took it out of a wrapped um, piece of cloth just like this. Here's here's what I want you to see. This is the bread that we use for communion or Lord's Supper. This is the bread, that which comes late after, that is used at the end of the meal. And here's the picture. This bread has been wrapped in a white linen cloth and buried away. Here's what happens. When that is taken back out, there is a prayer. The prayers that are used in... um, 
a Passover celebration are very consistent. If you, um, I have here um, one of our uh, guides. It's called a, um, a Haggadah that walks through the different prayers that you would have during your Passover celebration. And you pray the same thing. You may add to it, but you pretty much pray exactly the same thing, either in Hebrew or in your heart language. And the prayer that Jesus would have prayed, at least a part of it, when he took that bread, was he would say, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Now here's what I want you to, here's the picture I want you to see at the beginning. When Jesus did that, he was prophetically showing his disciples on the night before he was crucified that he, the bread of life, his body would be taken and wrapped in a linen cloth after he died. It would be buried into the earth and it would be brought back to life because God is the God who brings forth bread from the earth. For thousands of years, Family after family, generation after generation has used the Afikoman in that exact way and they've missed its picture of Jesus Christ. What is more is the bread itself, the way that it's made, it's in part it was made because there wasn't time for the bread to rise. When they left out of Egypt, they had to go quickly. But also it is a picture of the Savior, of the bread of life. In order to make matzah, whether you're making it by hand or whether it's machine-made like this I have here, there are three distinctive things that happen with the matzah. In order for the matzah to truly be able to cook, you have to pierce it. You have to take something sharp and pierce through the dough. That's why you can see the little holes that are there in it. It's pierced. Also, as it cooks, it is bruised. You'll see that the marks that, are, that occur on here about um, what happens to it. And then finally, because of the way it cooks and the way that it's pierced, it ends up with stripes. Well, all those things are pictures that come out of Isaiah 53 speaking about what Jesus would do for us. Also, we see it in Zechariah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and by his stripes, his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. When Jesus uses that imagery, when he says he is the bread of life, he is trying to point um, the people of Israel back to the picture that they would have been so familiar with of unleavened bread. Bread that has no sin, perfectly sinless, it is would be pierced, it would be bruised, it would be striped in order to bring deliverance to all who place their trust in the Savior. So the Afikoman would be taken, would be hidden away, and then the other part of the piece would be shared with um, the people. And there are several other elements that you have that are part of a Passover celebration that I don't really have time to, to go too much detail on. One of the things, though, I'll just give you a quick summary is this is an event that takes place in the spring, and it's about life. Um, things are beginning to, to, to grow again, and so what you would do as part of your beginning of your meal is you would take the carpus, a green vegetable like this, and you would dip it in salt water because it was a reminder that God is the God who gives us life. But for the people of Israel at that time, their life was difficult and filled with tears. 
And so they would dip the carpus into the salt water and allow that salt to touch their tongues to remind them that though God gives life, often life is filled with difficulty and with tears. It was a recognition of what they were going through, the reality of their experience. Also, a very, very important part, one of the requirements of celebrating Passover. You could, you could get by without doing this because this one isn't listed in the Scripture, but one of the things that is listed in the Scripture is called the marar or the bitter herbs. This is a piece of horseradish. If anybody's hungry, I'll be happy to toss it to you and you can just have at it. Um, you were required um, as part of your Passover celebration to eat of the bitter herbs. It was a reminder of the bitterness and the difficulty that Israel was experiencing in slavery to Egypt. But it is a greater picture of the bitterness that sin causes to us in each and every one of our lives. And so God gave us this multi-sensory experience to, to play out the gospel message that sin will take your life farther than you want to go. It will destroy you. It will make your life bitter. What's beautiful is that later on in the celebration, you take some more of the marar, the bitter herbs, and at this point, instead, you have another um, dish that you serve that's called the, the heroset. And what this is, is this is a mixture of, of apples and raisins and wine and honey and, and nuts that is sweet. And when you place this, the heroset, on a piece of matzah with the marar, it makes even that which is bitter sweet. It's a picture of what God can do. God can take even the brokenness of your life and my life, what sin has done to us, and he can make it sweet. Now, here's an interesting aspect of that. You saw that there was a, de- a debate amongst the disciples about who would betray Jesus. The scripture tells us that the way that Jesus identified the one who would betray them is he said, the one who dips with me in the bowl. That dipping in the bowl was of the heroset. You see, even at that moment, Jesus was extending to Judas the opportunity to come back. That he didn't have to to go out with just the bitterness of sin. He could come back and taste the sweetness of grace and mercy. That's how he identified his betrayer. But Judas went out and later on that evening betrayed Jesus and brought the soldiers to arrest him. So with the matzah and the afikoman and the different elements you come to, the next aspect that you have is that part of the celebration of Passover involves four cups. You'll notice even in the, in the video that Jesus shared a cup before the bread. When we think of Lord's Supper, we always think, well, the bread comes first and then the cup, right? But you notice that he, he poured a cup and he said, divide this amongst you for I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I come in my Father's kingdom. That was because that was a part of the Passover celebration. What you have when you um, celebrate Passover is that there are four cups that you will drink throughout the course of the evening. The first cup is the cup of dedication or sanctification. It means that this is set apart for the Lord. 
This is the Lord's Passover. It is what he is doing, not what we are doing, not something that we do in our strength, but it belongs to the Lord. The second cup is the cup of judgment. This cup recognizes that sin has to be paid for. And it recognizes that in order for the children of Israel to be set free from slavery, judgment had to come. And what happens with this cup is it's very, very interesting because this cup you do not drink during a Passover meal. Isn't that good to know? You don't have to drink the cup of judgment. Here's what you do. is You would take uh, another plate and what you would do is you would dip your finger into the cup of judgment and recite the name of all of the plagues. And you would drop drops of wine onto your plate. So you would go um, blood, oops, blood, blood, frogs, 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 lice, 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 all the way through all 10 of them, okay? You recognize that those plagues were necessary, but it's not a cup that you drink. And what you would see is that Ultimately, what was going to pay the price of judgment would be spilt drops of blood. It was a picture moving forth to what God himself was going to do. We discover when Jesus is praying in the garden, he he makes this prayer that seems a little maybe unusual to us. He appeals to the Father and says, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That is the cup of judgment. Jesus, in his humanity, he didn't want to have to suffer. If there was another way, he would say, Lord, let's use the other way. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he willingly submitted himself to drink the full measure of the cup of judgment for us. That's what the picture points to. The next cup is called the cup of redemption, to be bought to buy back. This is the cup that we celebrate in communion or Lord's Supper. It is the one that talks about how God would redeem his people with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. We'll show you where that comes from in just a moment because it comes directly from the Scripture. The last cup is the cup of praise. This is the cup that will be shared by all who believe in God at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's how you would end a Passover celebration, a time of rejoicing, and then you would sing a song. But it was pointing to an anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. It was a cup of praise. Now, where does that that come from? Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to look at Exodus chapter 6. And in verse 6, it says this. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. That first statement, there there are several I will statements here or I am statements about, about the Lord. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from the under the burdens of the Egyptians. That is the first cup, is to recognize that this is the Lord's Passover. It is a cup of dedication that you set it aside for the Lord. Next statement, he says, I will deliver you from slavery to them. That he is going to be the deliverer. He is going to bring judgment upon um, all that have held them in bondage. He's going to pay the price. 
Thirdly, he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. That's the cup of redemption. And finally, the cup of praise. He says this, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. That last cup, that cup of praise is the marriage promise of Jesus. It's a reminder when it says the marriage supper of the lamb, when the bride of Christ, this is God's promise where he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Those are wedding vows to his church, to his people. And so in Exodus here, chapter six, we see the background for each of these cups that have been celebrated for thousands of years about what God himself would do for his people. And it's a picture of this story of redemption that is absolutely beautiful and finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The cup of dedication, I am the Lord, is served before the meal to set it apart. The cup of judgment, I will deliver you from slavery, this cup is not drunk by the participants, but symbolizes that only the death of the firstborn could bring deliverance. It's a cup we couldn't pay because we can't pay the price for the judgment. We can only receive judgment. We can't pay its price because we're not sinless. The cup of redemption, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment is exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He stretched out his arms and he became our thirst. And all the judgment, all the wrath of God for sin of humanity was placed upon him, upon his outstretched arms on the cross in order to buy us back. And then finally, the cup of praise, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. That, is, that cup is drunk at the end of the meal as an expression of love for the Lord who has rescued us. Well, there's one other element that is absolutely essential to understanding Passover, and that is the lamb. Since the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, there has been no lambs sacrificed. Instead, in modern-day Judaism, the way that it is done is that you will make some kind of offering, give a gift, do a good deed that is to represent the sacrifice of the lamb. But the scripture is very clear in telling us without the shedding of blood, there is no redemption, there is no forgiveness of sins. In the original Passover, what God required the people to do was to take a lamb, they were to bring it um, into their home, they were to prepare it and they were to kill it and they were to take the blood of the lamb and they were to paint it over the lintel, the top of the door, and down each side of the doorway of their home so that when the destroyer came, which is the Lord himself, he would see the blood and he would pass over the house because the people inside the house were covered. They were under the blood. You see the picture of how that leads to us being under the blood of Jesus Christ? And what you would notice is that even in uh, portrayed in this picture when you see that there is blood painted there at the top, blood on both sides, and the blood on the top would drip down to the floor, you would see that it makes a picture of the cross. 
of the wounds of Jesus Christ. As he bled from his head with the crown of thorns that had been beaten down upon his scalp. As he would bleed from the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet. It was a picture foreshadowing what Jesus Christ would do for us. And there were very strict requirements for the Passover lamb as it was required. It had to be perfect without blemish. There couldn't be any spot upon the lamb in order for it to be recognized as a uh, Paschal or uh, Passover lamb. It had to represent a foreshadowing of Jesus. If you remember when John the Baptist first sees Jesus um, before his baptism, what he says is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist saw that Jesus Christ was the Passover Lamb. He was the answer to Abraham's prophecy all the way back at the sacrifice of Isaac where the Lord stayed his hand when he had said, The Lord will provide himself the Lamb. In other words, he himself would be the Passover lamb. He would be the one who pays the price, the penalty of our sin. The scriptures record concerning Jesus that none of his bones were broken. And this was very unusual in crucifixion. Normally, they would break the thigh bones of of the victim on the cross in order to hasten their death. But when the soldiers came to break the legs of Jesus, they discovered he was already dead. Because one of the requirements for the Passover lamb is that none of its bones could be broken. In every, even to the smallest detail, Jesus has been, or God has been trying to get our attention to show us that Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. Let me show you just a a little bit more about that as well. What would happen in in the temple um, is that the people would bring their Passover lambs um, to the temple about noon. And at noon, they would begin to prepare the Passover lambs, what's called in the scripture, the sixth hour. At the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., the shofar, the trumpet would blow, and the priest would begin to kill or give instructions to have killed all of the Passover lambs. It happened at a very precise point in time every single year. This is what it says in Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it and said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and he put it on a reed and gave gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. That ties into the Passover celebration as well, but I don't have time to explain it. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. John's account of the exact same moment says this in John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up the spirit. 
at exactly 3 p.m. on what we call Good Friday, that was the moment when the Passover lambs were sacrificed. The trumpet blew, and at that exact moment, the Passover lambs in the temple, thousands and thousands of them were being killed. And on a cross outside of the city, God's Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, gave up his spirit and said, it is finished. He was the perfect Passover lamb. And at that exact same moment, when he said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit, and the lambs were being killed in the temple, the veil in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from from the rest of the temple was torn from top to bottom, meaning that now there was a way for all people to go into the presence, the very holiest presence of God, and that was through his Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. You begin to see some of the picture that what we celebrate as Lord's Supper, has a beautiful story behind it that God has been telling for thousands of years about how He would rescue us. Not just how He would rescue His people from slavery in Egypt, but His plan from the very beginning to rescue all peoples. With that in mind, I want to ask us to prepare our hearts to partake of the bread and of the cup. So would you bow your heads for just a moment? Lord God, the beauty of your love, of your sacrifice, is truly more than our minds can comprehend. Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to each and every one of us. Would you whisper into our hearts and our minds? Would you whisper into the heart and mind of each person here? Remind them this is how much you love them. That your plan from the beginning of the ages was to rescue us, knowing we would rebel, knowing that we would sin. You've been trying to communicate that from the very beginning that you yourself would provide a way for us to be changed, for us to be bought back from our sin and to have a relationship with you and be clothed in your righteousness. Lord, forgive me for taking for granted the depth of your love. Forgive me for glossing over the incredible beauty of the message you have been speaking to us from the very beginning, the good news that you, Jesus Christ, are our Passover lamb. And that everyone that places himself underneath your sacrifice, under your blood, is saved. For those who do not yet know you, Lord, I pray that today they would simply call upon the name of Jesus and ask you to save them. And that today would be their day of deliverance, of new life, of new birth. For the rest of us, Lord, help us to recognize how far you have gone to reach us. And then, Lord, prepare our hearts. Reveal any sin within us. Help us to confess it and to turn from it.
And then in faith to come to your table to be reminded of your love and of your sacrifice. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for you are our Passover.